today on EdgeFX. We're staring out at this landscape that is so awe-inspiring. I mean, it's so dramatic and massive that even just that confrontation with the landscape feels like a confrontation with the elemental forces of, you know, your life and the universe. Bree Meyer, a dissertator in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and editor for EdgeFX, speaks with Dr. Adam Call, an anthropologist at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. Dr. Call is the author of several books about Irish music, the impacts of tourism on local places around the world, and death and dying. He is co-editor of the book Leisure and Death, an anthropological tour of risk, death, and dying, which is the topic of today's episode. The following conversation concerns issues of death and dying, including suicide, which can be difficult for some listeners. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, please dial 988 to reach a local crisis center for free and confidential emotional support in the United States, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. book touches on a variety of darker and perhaps uncomfortable truths that are important to cover, including the tragic implosion of the Titan submersible earlier this, mm-hmm. earlier this year. I feel like that's the thing that I thought of immediately when mm. thinking about leisure and death is the actual risk of dying that you undertake when you do these leisure activities. I definitely understand the ways that your research in Ireland intersects with both leisure and death, but could you talk a little bit more to our listeners about how and why you arrived at that topic? Sure. Well, this really comes out of the classic sort of anthropological method, which is participant observation. So between 2002 and three, uh, my wife and I lived in a small village called Doolin on the west coast of Ireland. And I was studying something completely different. I was studying pub session music, you know, traditional Irish music and the impacts that tourism was having on on the music, on what people thought of it. You know, this is a completely different topic, but one of the things about that region of Ireland is that just to the south of that village is a landscape called the Cliffs of Moher. Really, really beautiful, 700 foot tall, sheer kind of uh, cliff rock face that, you know, just um, is cut off by the Atlantic Ocean. Really, really beautiful spot. About a million or more tourists visit every year, which to put it in context, the whole population of Ireland is about 5 million people. So a lot of tourists go to the site and it's really beautiful gorgeous place. It's rock, sea, sky, and it sort of gets you to just sort of contemplate the elemental forces of life, right? So it's a popular place to go visit. And so I'd been up there many times myself. And one of the the kind of sad and tragic things about that landscape is it's also a suicide black spot. So people sometimes travel there to complete suicide. And for some of my local friends in the village who were volunteer Coast Guard workers, there's the unit of the Irish Coast Guard that is based out of Doolin. I mean, they had to be the ones to go collect the bodies, essentially, of people who were committing suicide there. So it was sort of always this thing, this sort of dark element in the village, in the region that people knew about and talked about. And if you go up to the the site, to the Cliffs of Moher, I mean, there's uh, suicide prevention hotlines and there are memorials up there. So you have this really kind of lovely light tourism and this beautiful landscape, but also this kind of shadowy, tragic darkness to that site too, where for some people, 
It's a place of beauty and a place as Fintan O'Toole, the Irish journalist and author, he says, you know, it's a place where you go to contemplate death, but then you walk away from it and you feel refreshed. But then there are some people who confront death and they complete suicide. So, you know, really darkly meaningful place for some people. Observing that for years in that main bit of fieldwork, I spent 14 months studying the music and the tourism between 2002 and three, and then been going back for years and years and years ever since then to catch up with people and to get new projects. And it just sort of occurred to me that there's something odd about this juxtaposition between this kind of frolicking, lovely, you know, landscape tourism and, and this really serious, dark, kind of tragic set of events that happens there that got me to think about leisure and death. And so then we, we did the classic thing. My colleague, Jonathan Skinner, who's in London, we were talking about this and we thought, let's put a panel together. So we, we went to the American Anthropological Association, put a panel together and found that Everybody wanted to talk about it, publishers, other anthropologists, you know, so we thought, well, there's something to this. And so we put the book together. We realized people were kind of interested in this odd juxtaposition. Definitely. And I think that's why EdgeFX is drawn to it, too. Hmm. You don't normally think about those two things together. And yet there are examples that we can bring up even like off the top of our head that have happened that push these two things together. I think anthropology, it's fair to say, has a track record of sort of siloing different topics that hmm. might seem like you're saying this tourism and leisure and then death are like totally two different things. Why do you think it's important to think about the polysemic or multifaceted nature of sociality? Do we gain anything by actually putting these things in um, hmm perspective and losing those stark categorizations. Yeah, because that's what's out in the, the world. One of the strengths of anthropology is to look at the radical spectrum of cultural diversity and belief systems and practices around any given practice or belief. So let's talk about death. And if you look at the ideas about death, the practices, the rituals around death and dying across the planet and across time, you realize that there is so much diversity in terms of what people think is happening. The reality is that these things are not siloed. Death and dying is a very processual thing. It's not an event at all. It's something that happens slowly. And in a lot of cultures, it's really kind of a rite of passage into the ancestral world. A funeral becomes that kind of rite of passage, in a sense, not necessarily just for the living to mourn the loss of the dead, but for the dead person to become an ancestor. There's a lot of cultures that have wildly different ideas about what this thing even is. So once you start looking cross-culturally, it really does just kind of naturally shatter a lot of the silos that we tend to build up in, let's say, American thinking about death and dying and the kind of medicalization of it in a hospital setting, which we literally put a timestamp on the moment of death in our medical records. So we have convinced ourselves that it's a toggling between kind of like a light switch between off and on. And it really is not that even in a Western biomedical setting where doctors are trying to cure all of the symptoms, supposedly, of dying in this kind of microcosmic reductive way. And then eventually they fail and the person passes away and we put a timestamp on that. And that's really not what's happening. It's a very slow process. And for a lot of cultures, they believe it's a process that continues into and beyond life. Once you start looking cross-culturally, silos of all sorts kind of fall away and fall apart. It's an important thing to look at and realize as we're all doing our research. We're so deep 
into one silo that mm-hmm. actually there's a lot of potential when you start looking at opposites even the lines are blurred I think that's true disciplinarily too. When you start looking at a topic like death and dying, you realize how interdisciplinary it is. I mean, we could talk about it from that kind of biomedical standpoint in the sort of biology of dying and what happens at death and after death to the body. But you start looking at it psychologically and socioculturally and economically. You look at the industry of death. You know, cross-culturally, we we start realizing those silos don't exist, but even kind of across the university, you start realizing that we have to look at a phenomenon like it with multiple different lenses. So that polysemy that you're talking about, we really have to truly apply that to a complex topic like death. We think it's simple and it's not. I'm interested in the idea of simulated risk, because I feel like a lot of folks seek this out in their leisure activities, but they don't necessarily realize it. Can you talk a little bit more about simulated risk and how it's either related to or distinct from dark tourism and how that might come up in folks as they seek out these activities? Yeah. So your reference to the the submarine that imploded, putting yourself in a situation where part of the leisurely fun or interest or adventure is to actually risk your own life. That's kind of what you're getting at. And there's, of course, all sorts of activities that we seek out that put ourselves in danger like that. Cliff jumping. We have a whole chapter in the book about cliff jumping into the ocean parachuting. I jumped out of a plane once for better or worse. Maybe it wasn't the wisest move, but it, mm-hmm. it taught me a lot about that kind of risk-taking for fun. And I wasn't really sure if it was any fun at all, actually, at the yes. end of the day. <laughs> you know, it was, it was certainly interesting, but fun isn't really the word I would use for it. We like to push ourselves. That's different from dark tourism, where we're seeking out sites of death, Dark tourism really is defined by lots of different scholars as travel to sites where death and dying has occurred to sort of bear witness to it or to kind of gawk at it. So there are some forms that are really educational. So some forms are kind of almost a pilgrimage to an important memorial site, for example. And then other forms of dark tourism really are to watch the suffering of others almost as a form of entertainment. So there's a wide variety of versions of dark tourism. But that's kind of distinct. That was one of the things that we tried to tackle in this book, which is that there's more going on here than just dark tourism. Even though dark tourism is in and of itself a very complex set of practices, what we wanted to incorporate were other accidental juxtapositions between leisure and death, because we thought we could just expand the scope a little bit of the discussion to include places like the Cliffs of Moher, where a lot of tourists will go and they'd never really thought about death and dying at a site like that. They saw it on the brochures. They saw it was beautiful. They incorporated it into a larger package of events and locations. And then they get there and on the one hand, are staring out at this landscape that is so awe-inspiring. I mean, it's so dramatic and massive that even just that confrontation with the landscape feels like a confrontation with the elemental forces of, you know, your life and the universe. So some people have a really profound reaction emotionally to just the landscape. They might not be contemplating death and life and those things, but there's a kind of awe-inspiring in the in the original sense of that word. But then they're also confronted with these signs, a hotline for suicide confronted with a memorial. And then they come to realize, oh my gosh, people have died here. So there is this just kind of puncturing of the moment with the reality of the past and people having died. That's not dark tourism per se, because nobody or not many people, I don't think, would be traveling there on purpose to go look at the memorials 
or to see anybody die, hopefully, a million people go there to just look at the landscape and then they're confronted with death. I think there are lots of scenarios and situations where death and dying kind of seeps into our leisure practices. And then, as you said, you know, the risk-seeking leisure practices are kind of toying with risk and death. I remember sitting with my legs literally over the edge of Don Angus <laughs> on the Aran Islands because there's no fences there. So you can yeah. just sit on the edge and all you're seeing is this big drop and then the rest of the Atlantic. And it was a moment with intrusive thoughts where I was like, mm. oh my gosh, it's not a windy day today, but gust could literally come up and I have nothing yeah. to stop me from falling. So again, yeah, you go there and look at the beauty of the ocean, but you are at the same time very afraid that yeah. something could happen. I want to hear more about your skydiving experience <laughs> um, because it sounds like it was fun and scary, maybe both. Yes, I was probably 40 or 41. And it was my father-in-law's 70th birthday. And, and he'd been drafted during the Vietnam War and kind of worked his way into the parachute regime, basically. And so he was parachuting a lot in order to not be shipped abroad, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so he kept getting promoted into these different niche areas. So he jumped a lot as a young man, and he wanted to do it one, one more time when he turned 70. So my wife and my sister-in-law and I purchased a tandem jump for him from one of these skydiving companies. And we thought we couldn't leave him hanging, you know, we had to kind of do it ourselves as well. So my wife and I signed up. My sister-in-law was like, nope, I've got kids. You know, you all can, can do it. So we signed up and I tried not thinking about it for the next few months. But then we showed up at the site. They gave us really brief instructions. I mean, shockingly brief. I thought good, there'd be like good. an hour classroom setting or something about safety. It was pretty brief. Good. We signed some major paperwork and then we got on the plane, you know, we got kind of clipped in with our tandem jumper, the experienced person and into a tiny plane and we're circling up and up and up and up and up. And I started just kind of losing my mind because, <laughs> you know, I started realizing what I'd gotten myself into. Mm -hmm. um, and as we got closer and closer to 11,000 feet, I was just having these thoughts that I guess, you know, you like you said, maybe kind of intrusive thoughts. I was just thinking like, well, I've had a really good run, achieved a lot of the things I've wanted to achieve in life. I got tenure as an anthropologist. I've published a few things. I was like really contemplating and he kicked open the door and I was the first to go out. Okay, um, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> of course. You know, the wind is rushing past you and you're looking out over the, the step that's attached to the wing that you're supposed to step on. And you can see the curvature of the earth. I mean, everything looks like a kid's map or something on a, you know, dining room table. And the guy's screaming in my ear, good to go. Are you good to go? And I was so out of my mind. I was just staring at him. I couldn't even respond. And finally, it kind of it registered what he was saying. And I kind of said, yeah. And we just went tumbling out of the plane. And I had a massive altered state of consciousness. Yep. My eyes rolled back up in my head. And I have a really hard describing what that was feeling like. You know, for about a minute, you're falling at terminal velocity until the parachute opens. It was a moment where... When we started working on this book, I was like, oh, I understand this kind of strange juxtaposition from an experience like that where I thought I was having fun, but it wasn't. Fun is not the right word for it. I was kind of looking in the face of death, I suppose, with this risky activity. I tell people now, like, I'm not sure I would recommend it. Go for it if you want to. But I, I don't know if I would ever do it again. You know, it was terrifying and exhilarating and amazing. Makes me think of what William Shatner said about his <laughs> space flight. That yeah. like oh, he yeah. thought he was going to have a great time and he uh -huh. was going to see, he's going to be awed by the earth. Yeah. But he actually just ended up feeling sad. A similar feeling, I think. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, I, this is supposed to be fun, but you end up being 
just overwhelmed with a totally different feeling. And I think that's what a lot of folks would actually end up experiencing. I kind of want to talk a little bit more about the environment Mm -hmm. and the Cliffs of Mower. Could you talk more about what it's like to be at the Cliffs of Mower and what the tourists are doing there? Yeah. So one of the things that ends up happening is pretty common is that I think it's kind of a psychological move people are making in order to deal with just the sheer size of the Cliffs of Mohar and sites like this. You know, I think this probably happens at the Grand Canyon and and other places around the world that are that dramatic. They start joking about it. So there's a lot of joking behavior. And, you know, locals who work at the site and, you know, people who live in Doolin, they will often say most of that kind of behavior is from Americans, Mm. which makes a kind of sense to me, I guess, because I think, you know, Americans are kind of the pinnacle of what we talk a lot about in the book about death denial, this attempt to push away death and dying from our psychology. Mm -hmm. Americans in particular, but lots of other people too, will start pretending to jump and have people take pictures of it. So there's a whole genre of photography at the cliffs where people are jumping up in the air in a safe space usually, but in the background, they're sort of posing it to make it look like they're jumping off the cliffs or the kind of more popular version of this is to find a place where there is a slight little edge to the landscape close to the cliff edge where you pretend to be hanging off the edge. So all you can see are your hands or your face and you're like, ah, there's usually people kind of laughing in this kind of pretend terrified way. So that's a common sort of joking behavior that happens at the cliffs. And I've actually watched people put themselves in massive amounts of actual danger to pose for photos like that. So it can be a really dangerous kind of thing to engage in if people are being a little careless, right? And so accidental deaths do happen. I mean, these are not in high numbers or anything. It does occur. So that kind of joking behavior, I really do think speaks to this kind of discomfort people are having with this confrontation. And they sort of make these kind of macabre jokes about dying at a site like that. I remember seeing many people doing that and also going beyond the safety fences Mm -hmm. as well. And we as undergrads wanted to do that too. Partially, I think we wanted to question authority because we were told not to, (laughs) but also you get better pictures that folks want to capture the majesty of this place. Mm -hmm. And to do that, they feel like they have to go maybe risk their own safety in order to capture it. I think there's a compulsion too. I mm-hmm. mean, there's there's something strange about it where you you just feel drawn to the edge. Yeah. Uh, there's just you know that's a very common thing that people say. You want to get to the edge to to look at the whole thing. But like Fintan O'Toole says, most people turn away and they feel refreshed. They feel more alive by having gone to the edge and then walking away. Do you think that leisure encounters or tourist encounters with these like huge pieces of nature are always going to involve affirmations of both? life and death. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's such a complicated (laughs) question because it kind of depends on the place and it depends on the people who are talking about as tourists and travelers, you know. I mean, one of the interesting things to me anyway about doing critical studies of tourism and travel is that, you know, there's such an intercultural thing happening. So many different cultures kind of intermixing and colliding and sort of blending in these interesting hybrid ways. Yeah, that kind of hybridity sort of leads me to hesitate to even answer that because it's so complicated. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to say how each of us reacts, you know, to sites like that. I feel like there is a sense of awe, though. Awe includes things like fear. Yes. You know, we, we've just re- 
defined that word, you know, and kind of used, overused it in such a way that awesome, everything's awesome. And yeah. that's a positive thing, but it's sort of like the word interesting. I think interesting is a great word because it incorporates even negative things. It's, it's complex. So awe is this really powerful emotion that absolutely can include terrifying feelings of fear. Do you think that tourists should stop seeking out such risky landscapes and activities? Mm. Or is the crossover kind of inevitable? Yeah, that's a great question. So the kind of morality mm. question about leisure and death and dark tourism. I do think there are some very condemnable versions of dark tourism. Probably that includes some risk-taking activities too that are not healthy, are not good for local people. I think of Kathleen Adams' chapter in the book about the Tanataraja people, and she writes really powerfully about this sort of pornography of the macabre and this kind of almost pleasurable seeking out of death and dying, even when it's other people's death and dying, maybe especially when it's other people's death and dying. And that's is something we should all cast aspersions on and, and condemn. It's pretty macabre and gross and grisly. And it's just gawking at, at a certain level. There are obviously some forms of this kind of activity that I think we can all collectively condemn and then other forms that really are maybe psychologically renewing and refreshing and wonderful. And so I think like the, the chapter on cliff jumping, you know, he talks about that as, as this really life affirming kind of, yeah, risky, but kind of amazing event kind of depends. It's up to the person whether they want to turn away from death. And you've talked about your skydiving experience and half of me is like, absolutely not. But half of me is like, yeah, <laughs> let's go. I'm going to do it. Yeah. I think it depends on the person too. Yeah, and it, and it really is. I mean, all of this is social. Mm -hmm. So it's all contextualized in social environments and cultural environments. And I think the morality question really has to do with other people around you as well. So yes. of course your actions affect local people, you know, that can, that can bring you into really kind of dark, gruesome territory as well. Okay. Last question. Let's end it on a hopeful note, maybe. <laughs> the book makes readers think about how death or the potential of it is not always dark. Mm -mm. Could you talk a little bit more about that to end it? Absolutely. I mean, there are multiple approaches to thinking through death and dying. We can do the kind of dark, depressing, macabre thing. We can also do what Montaigne did, you know, the philosopher who kind of embraces death and dying in order to live more richly. I think that's that's partly what we're trying to do with this book, is we're trying to humanize death and dying. We're trying to not look at it in a cold, kind of fractured, kind of biomedical way. We're really trying to contextualize death and dying into rich case studies. And then, yeah, we, we're not trying to see it as something to turn away from. And I think this really gets at that whole thesis of death denial, sort of that, that whole idea that especially in the 20th century, a lot of our beliefs and practices in American society, let's say, really were about pushing death away from our lives and denying that people were dead. And one of the common examples of this is the practice of embalming. And, you know, families will choose to embalm a relative for a funeral for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons that some people do it is to kind of deny the fact that they're dead. Yeah. One of the biggest compliments you can pay a funeral director in that scenario is they look so lifelike, which to me is just this moment of the ultimate sort of death denial. And then you seal that person in a casket, which is sealed in a, a vault, 
and then buried. We don't want the decay to happen. We don't want death to have even occurred. And yet, this is all turning now. So we're we're having a moment where I think we're entering into a much more death-positive era, where we're trying to embrace death. We're thinking about the environmental costs of burials, of embalming. I mean, that's that's pumping the body full of chemicals, and those eventually leach out into a cemetery. So we end the book with a really beautiful chapter about green burials and how people are really trying to sort of embrace death in a more human, personal, intimate kind of way, where maybe people, friends and family wash the body and wrap it in muslin and then bring it out to the site where it's buried, perhaps just in that muslin in the ground, or maybe in a very simple pine kind of casket that will quickly decay. And then there are things like laws are being passed in places like Oregon to legalize things like human composting, which is kind of an industrialized way to very quickly turn a human body into essentially dirt over the course of, I think it's only five or six weeks. And then you can, you know, the family can do whatever they want with that dirt. We're kind of coming around to some different ways of thinking about our own deaths. And we're also having to confront things like social media and what happens to our lives online once we die. So a lot of people are starting to have these conversations. And so there's this whole movement um, called the death positive movement, which is trying to embrace this process in a more, uh, in a healthier way. And I like that it's kind of poetic because we are starting to embrace the positives of death that we can. And we're also having to confront the death of the planet as well. So like the reasons that we're talking about green burial is because the planet is not doing well because of all of our human actions in the past. So it's like a full circle moment. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about our pop culture, we're obsessed with death and dying. And, you know, obviously, you know, violent sort of films and TV shows and zombies and, Mm -hmm. you know, vampires and all this sort of stuff. That's all, you know, the flip side of the the kind of entertainment of death. And one of the genres, you know, a storyline, yep. which is really about the death of society. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, this is a really common kind of theme that clearly is in our heads, right? Collectively yes. as a society, we're, we're thinking through this and working it out through our pop culture. All of this is kind of bubbling around the culture at the moment. Yeah. But I th- there is this kind of small but growing movement of really trying to kind of embrace the reality and the the process and the consequences of death. Anything else you want to touch on? No, thank you. This has been really fun conversation. Yes, I appreciate it. Thank you for everything. (laughs) That was Bree Meyer in conversation with Dr. Adam Call about his co-edited volume, Leisure and Death, an anthropological tour of risk, death, and dying. Bree Meyer is a dissertator in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and also an editor for Edge Effects. Adam Call is an anthropologist at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. Dr. Call is the author of several books about Irish music, the impacts of tourism on local places around the world, and death and dying. And again, if you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, please dial 988 to reach a local crisis center for free and confidential emotional support in the United States, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and the Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Prana Rana and me, Sam Newton. 
The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of your episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to Edge Effects wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and review or tell a friend about it. It really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at EdgeFXMag or find us online at edgeffects.net.